Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. Everyone, welcome back to Thread. And this episode today is going to be our last one in the series we've been covering called God's People Birthed. And so we looked last week at Moses in Egypt and we left off with him fleeing to the wilderness in Midian. And we're going to jump into today that those 40 years that he spends in the wilderness. And this is Dave's baby is the wilderness if you know dave <laughs> <laughs> you know dave is baby you know, wilderness so i'm going to be uh-huh. i'm going to be listening as much as you guys back at home hopefully <laughs> okay. anticipating the questions you would ask him i mm. like that we're matching today for those that are on youtube we're both in brown it wasn't planned okay look <laughs> at that we're both in brown we are. for the wilderness <laughs> yes yeah so i guess we can jump right in Okay, let's jump in. Yeah, this is a this is going to be a a little bit of a deeper episode, some things to really process and think about and hear some new things today that we may not know of. So, it should be fun and you can just stop me and ask questions, Hannah. Okay. As you I will. do. So, <laughs> so y- you brought something up in the last episode you talked about economy of words. You know, what's interesting is we see the first 40 years of Moses's life in Exodus 2, finishes in the middle of Exodus 3. The second 40 years of his life start in the middle of Exodus 3 and end in Exodus 4. They're each just a chapter and a half. There's not a lot said, but we know that a lot happened. Obviously, it was 40 years and 40 years. And then we're going to see the entire next series that we're doing on the the podcast, the 40 years in the desert with Israel, because there's a lot that goes on there and there's a lot of text. So it's the rest of Exodus and Numbers and you know, Leviticus and all those Deuteronomy, there's lots of books we're going to be covering all the rest of the Pentateuch. So the questions that we really want to start asking today is what made Moses Moses? Hmm. And, And this is, you know, something we're going to pull on this thread. We're going to pull on in the next series. What made Israel Israel? When we're followers of Jesus as disciples, we always ask ourselves the question, what made Jesus, Jesus? It's a life of imitation. And so what we don't see in a lot of the ancient narratives is the specifics. We don't see what made Jesus, Jesus. We don't see what made Moses, Moses. And so it leaves us with a lot of things to wrestle with. We see kind of implications with how they lived and some of the things that happened to them. So like with Moses's story, he spent 40 years in a palace receiving a top level education. So it was actually the additional 40 years as a shepherd in the space of wilderness that transformed him into the man that God needed him to be to lead Israel. It is interesting reading his story that he doesn't jump straight in as deliverer with his time in the palace. It's, it seems like he's been rerouted, like an indirect route to leadership, but it's true. This is a formative time and actually reminded me a lot of our episode on light and darkness where we talked about how paradoxically 
darkness can be vision in many ways. The dark times we go yeah. through, just the lessons you learn through those times and what it does to our character. But in a similar way, I feel like wilderness time could be orientation and not just wandering. And I feel like we, we get a glimpse of that in this, this, these 40 years that Moses has in the wilderness. We really will. And a lot of what happens in wilderness, is it's a disorienting time. It's a mm. stripping down time. It's God making room in us for him. Mm. And that's the part that's painful. God often has to stop us in our tracks and strip down a lot of things in our life so that there's space to listen. Mm. And I think we're going to see that a lot play out. But we understand, you know, this idea of hard work or labor for transformation, what character it produces. We understand that. You know, it was interesting. I had this really fascinating conversation with my dad at Thanksgiving. He's in his 80s. We were talking about his growing up and, you know, they, his grandfather purchased a piece of land in 1914 in the middle of Minnesota. Wow. And they had to clear it by hand, which means, you know, there's no tractors, but lots of trees that they had to take down by hand with horses. They had to put up buildings. They didn't have electricity or running water. And that was into my dad's childhood. He didn't have electricity and running water. And it's just a life that forms character in you. You have to be up before the sun rises to milk the cows and feed the animals. And then you go to school and then you come back and you do more chores. And, you know, it's true when we think about when someone tells you they grew up on a farm, it actually means something. (laughs) We understand that God works in these kind of difficult spaces to form character. What's interesting today, we live in a world where most of us don't have that physical rigor in our life, that hardship in the developed Western world, especially. So in this world where we lack I mean, we're not spending 40 years in the desert. Hmm. So the desert, the wilderness becomes an important allegory for us to understand the spiritual development. And by allegory, for those that may not be familiar with allegory, allegory is is looking at a story symbolically. So we're going to see how that works, even in some of the early, one of the early church fathers and how he wrote about Moses's life. So When we look at this story of Moses, we ended off last time at this 40-year mark. He was in the middle of this identity crisis, or we talk about an identity project. He had to figure out who he was. He leaves and he goes into the wilderness, Midian, exactly. And what we're going to see is that this time in wilderness really shaped him. So if we look at Moses's life in these three kind of major movements, we could say there was these 40 years of nurturing education, development, you know, in the palace. Then there were these 40 years of wilderness, transformation, difficulty, disorientation, identity project. And then he's able in the last 40 years of his life to really lead. Now that's a different paradigm than we saw with Jacob. When we talked about Jacob, we talked about these kind of six stages that Jacob's life went through in his formation. And part of the thing that's important here, Hannah, is we don't get stuck, right, in the way we see development, that we're all not going to follow the pattern. I mean, for most of us, if the last 40 years of the 40 years, we were really able to do what God created us to do, and we were 80 by that point, 
<laughs> we would never get there. So we have to see these as paradigms, right? So what I really want to tap into is how Christians have been asking these questions for a couple thousand years. So how do we think about spiritual growth and development? How do we see the context of these narratives to give us these kind of treatments of, of development? And we're going to look at three things today. We're going to kind of frame the biblical narrative itself and what happened with Moses. We're going to look at one of the church fathers from the fourth century and look at his insights into the life of Moses. And then we're going to dabble a little bit in transpersonal psychology which is oh, also wow. known as spiritual psychology. But it gives us insight as to how the intersection of spirituality and human development work and things that we now understand that give insight into this. So let's start with kind of framing the situation with Moses. As you said last week, he kills the slave driver. And that event set off a whole series of events that really the next day starts even playing out for him. So if you could, let's pick up the story there in Exodus 2.15. So it says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat, sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill their troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Raoul, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Raoul asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So this is all that the scriptures tell us about this next stage that starts in his life. He leaves, he flees Egypt, he goes to Midian. Now, what's interesting about the Midian location. I was looking this up on a map and getting ready for this. And we'll put this map up on the podcast for the people that watch in video. But Midian is this desert area that's now in Saudi Arabia. It's literally right across from where Mount Sinai is, where he's going to be leading Israel later. Of course, he doesn't know that. So what's happening is Moses flees into wilderness He's going to be transformed by it. He's going to come back and then he's going to take his people out to a very similar area. And now he's going to lead them through his, what basically his own experience. Hmm. But this story happens at a well. Interesting. We heard that before. Yeah. Right? And to, we well, we did. Well, just to clarify, it was Raul. So Raul is the same as Jethro, right? That yeah. Threw me off good for a question. Minute. It, yeah, so he's he goes by two names in in the scriptures. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He becomes he is Jethro. Okay. Yeah, good one. So it happens at a well. The well is kind of the town square, the public sphere for shepherds in the wilderness. It's kind of where you see your you see other people because you're alone <laughs> a lot. Hmm. Moses ends up defending these women shepherds, and when they tell Dad Raul Jethro, he says feed him. Let's give him shelter. And eventually he ends up giving him one of his daughters to be his wife. 
And so what we learn here is just context. Moses situates himself in this foreign land with a foreign people. He takes on a family and he even names his firstborn son, which we see the the power of naming, right? Uh, Gershom, his son, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. So his son kind of represents this new life that he has. So then the text jumps. We don't realize it at the time because, you know, as you said last week, Stephen doesn't tell us till later, but the text jumps 40 years from what you just read to this next verse 23, if you could read that, 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Sometimes what's thrown me off with this verse is God remembering his covenant. Like it's, I'm sure he didn't ever forget. (laughs) But then we see here, it's like, oh, here's their cry. And it's like, oh, now I remember. So that's a good point. So why is that said? I I think it's there to remind us, right? God doesn't forget his covenant. Hmm. And what we see happening is a pairing of two stories. So here's Moses's development. He's not the man he needs to be yet. But here's the people. So the need is there. The leader's not ready. Hmm. And God is preparing the leader to meet the need. And I think that's really powerful in and of itself, right? right? Yeah. There's, it's just not, mo- it's not wilderness for the sake of wilderness. It's wilderness for the sake of God's people. Hmm. And that becomes important to think about as, as we work through our own things. God is shaping us not just for ourselves, but often for others as well. Hmm. So if we look at this, this jump, right? We go... And all of a sudden, it just says after a long period, and we know it's 40 years, we have to ask a question here. What transformed Moses? What is it that made him so different? And how do we see him different? We're going to ask the same question when we get to the wilderness with God's people, Israel. They enter a certain way and they leave a certain way. And when we look at the before and after, we see transformation. So, what we see in the story is. Moses was rash, impetuous, but he had a passion for justice for his people. He comes back ready, tempered, matured, seasoned to lead. Now, what I want to do, I want to bring in a dialogue partner here with us today. This is not going to be someone like TJ Parisi, or we don't have a guest hand his face. This I know, I was like, who's coming in? Us online. <laughs> We, we, we have a guest. No, a dialogue partner with one of the church fathers. And this is one of the things I love about history is that we can look at our early or, or even late or even contemporary people that are walking uh, to follow Jesus and they have insights that are helpful. So Gregory of Nyssa, we're going to look at him today and we're going to learn from him today. So he was a fourth century Greek Cappadocian father. So what that really means is he he lived in the area of Cappadocia, but being Greek means there was basically two types of church fathers, those that were in Latin and those that were Greek, basically based on the language that they primarily worked and spoke, worked in and spoke. So he's a Greek Cappadocian father. Means he spoke Greek, he worked in the Greek, which, you know, as we know is important for us in 
the New Testament's written in Greek. And that's going to come to play a little bit in his insights here. So he would say, when he would interpret scripture, he would say of the Bible that these are historical documents, but the Holy Spirit provides spiritual instruction in the text for our spiritual development, which is a really kind of interesting way to look at it. Go, yeah, we look at this historically, but we also look at it spiritually. What's it doing to shape and form us? He wrote a book called The Life of Moses. And this book had two sections and he just, he called the two sections books. So in book one, it was history and book two was contemplation. What that would mean, what that kind of means in his understanding of scripture is that book one tells the story as the scriptures tell the story. Book two looks at the power of the spirit moving in the story to help us understand our own spiritual development the allegory piece. So how do we look at this literally and how do we look at this spiritually? And that's what he does with Moses's life. So when we look at how Gregory would look at Moses's life, he sees this as this spiritual ascent, this progress that we make. So he looks at Moses's life from the basket that you talked about last episode that he was in and this journey through the palace and then his journey in the wilderness. And then as he comes back to lead the people of God, he sees this as a perpetual progress, ongoing growth and development in his life all the way until, you know, and of course he dies on Mount Nebo, which is on the mountain. So he goes from the river to the mountain. It's, it's all about this kind of spiritual growth. And he would say things like, you know, when he describes it, that it's, it wasn't about obtaining perfection in the moral sense, but it was about attaining perfection in the making progress state. So I want to explain that and unpack that because this is really important for us. So he would say it's impossible for those who pursue the life of virtue to attain perfection. Think about that. It's impossible for those who want to be godly, to be perfect. Now, we would accept that at face value, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's impossible. But rather, he would say that the perfection of human nature actually comes in growth, in transformation, hmm. in progress. Now. This is, Perfection this is a powerful, it, it does seem strong. We're, and, and it's important that we tie this into what's going on in the book of Matthew, because this is part of what we struggle with, even in our English, is how we use this, right? So if you remember, in Matthew 5, 48, the Bible says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly mm. father is perfect. Yeah. So the question here is, what is meant by perfect? Hmm. Now, this is one of the places where the Greek becomes important because the Greek here is teleos. Now, for those, of the, those that follow the work we do, we have a journal called teleos. There's a hmm. reason for that. So what it's saying in Matthew 5.48 is, be teleos as your heavenly father is teleos. A better way to translate this into English is be complete, be fully grown, 
Be an adult, be fully developed, be mature, be a grown up <laughs> as God is a grown up, right? right? So we're called not to perfection in the moral sense. We're called to perfection in the sense of becoming the mature version of ourselves, the progressed version of ourselves. So when we go back to how Gregory would frame this, here's a, here's a quote that I think would be fun for us to read. And then I want to look at Philippians chapter three, but he says of God, because so God is ineffable. I think, did we talk about ineffable before? We did. We love use that, that definition. We love that word. I do love but maybe that you, word. Maybe you could define it again though, just because <laughs> I might have forgotten it. Some somebody might have. So ineffable is beyond our understanding. Mm. Right? Because God's ineffable. Pursuing him never ceases. That's what we talked about in the first episode. Do you remember the image of God episode? Yeah. That the idea is that we're constantly striving to understand God better. So there's this great quote that he says about God's the knowledge of God. And he says, the knowledge of God is a mountain steep indeed and difficult to climb. The majority of people scarcely reach its base. It kind of gives me imagery of Mount Everest, right? Like Mm, most of us will never even get to the base of the mountain. (laughs) He says, if one were a Moses, he would ascend higher and hear the sound of trumpets, which as the text of history says, became louder as one advances. So he paints Moses in this image of this kind of model for us to strive to be like, as Moses strove to be like, or grow closer and closer to God. Again, in the New Testament, we see Paul saying, follow my examples, I follow the example of Christ. Mm. It's this constant pursuit of moving forward. So one of his favorite passages is Philippians 3, and Hannah um, if you could read verses 13 and 14, it really demonstrates what he means by this progress. Okay, I do. And then I have a question. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Oh, do you want to ask your question ask now? now? Okay. <laughs> you can ask your question and then I'll come back oh, and talk about that passage. Okay. So this idea of perfection almost being like growth growth is perfection or it's more completion and maybe you're going to get to this later on but it's clear that the wilderness is a key part of Moses's growth um and my question is is wilderness then or these desert times something we should seek out for growth or will it just come find us because <laughs> it seems like it found Hagar found Moses, found the Israelites, but should we be seeking that out or we just sit still and That's such a great question. That is such a great (laughs) question. Okay. So there's two parts to this, right? So if we think about growth, if perfection is growth, right, Mm. then it's hard to believe that in wilderness we're growing. And it does beg the question, are we growing in wilderness? Hmm. And there's really three options that happen in wilderness. We are either moving forward towards promised land, and and we will get into this as we keep going on the story, or do we get stuck in wilderness because we're overwhelmed by it? Yeah. Or do we want to go back in the case that we'll see with Israel to eat the flesh pots of meat in Egypt? 
Mm. And th- that's always the temptation in wilderness is to not move forward through the pain, through the difficulty, through the struggle, through the disorientation. And so the temptation is to either fold or go backwards. Right. So there's that piece. But your question, should we go into the desert? Should we go into the wilderness? So, you know, in, in our Christian history, we have this whole stream of ways of approaching the Christian life, which is exactly this. The right. desert fathers and mothers were people that went out into the wilderness so that God yeah. could shape them. Right. This became monasticism. What if I wanted to focus on the work that God's doing in my life and I want to devote my life to it and I want to go and, and excuse myself from the normal kind of life that people around me live and I want to devote my life to this wilderness journey? That's really what monastic living is, mm. right? So we see this a lot in history. And I know people have different feelings and thoughts about that and philosophically and how they process that. But the question's valid. How do we do this? The the reality is God will always lead you there eventually, whether you choose to go or not, usually kicking and screaming. Right. So we go back to the the spirit, the spirit leading Jesus to the wilderness. Like when we see him get tempted, it's very... Yeah, you're right, though. There is the physical fleeing. You're right, the, the desert fathers and mothers. I think that was when the Emperor Constantine, like Christianity, became more commonplace and they felt like it was being watered down. And so they f- fled to the desert for this radical attempt to keep their faith. Although to some that seemed maybe individualistic. <laughs> but then I guess right. it's what it looks like to pursue that in our everyday life, too, like that desert sensation or that, yeah. That radical spirit. Well, if we look ultimately at the work of de- the work of wilderness, if the work of wilderness is to strip us down to make room for God, mm. that's something we should be striving for all the time. But we often don't, and God has to then force us into the wilderness. Mm, that's true. Right. <laughs> so we go back to this passage in Philippians three, and he's saying, "I strain towards what is ahead. I press on to the goal." There's a Greek word here. This is where him being a Greek father mattered. There's a Greek word here called apectasis, apectasis, and I'll put it up. We'll we'll put a slide up, but what it means is perpetual progress. Hmm. So this, this concept is a linchpin for Gregory, meaning it's kind of at the core, the heart of his whole way of thinking about the spiritual life. The spiritual life should be about constant progress. It should be about transformation. It should be about multiple conversions. It's not like we get converted once and then we're done and we just kind of hang on, wait for heaven. <laughs> it, it's more than that, right? It's the pursuit of completeness, of being grown up, of being developed. Mm. And so that becomes really important here in understanding that. So, so that's kind of Gregory's framework. So it doesn't end then for Gregory, because that's, I think, the paradoxical way of talking about it being complete or perfect, that there's an un- a sense of, oh, it's finished. <laughs> or is there an idea that this will never finish in our lifetime? Like we will be Never growing. finish in our lifetime. Oh, wow. I don't that's know if the, that's exactly a, right. I don't know if I like that or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, so, so what this really pokes at is, especially in our evangelical culture, we look at the spiritual life almost in these three phases that are very different. Before I was a Christian, then I had a conversion. 
and then one day I'll die and go to heaven. And what the journey says, if we look at this life as a spiritual or as a spiritual journey, we, we go, uh, uh-uh. the, the conversion experience was a, an important step in the journey, but what happened before that was important. What led me to the conversion was important. What happens afterwards is important as I continue to strive and strive hmm. as I'm, you know, straining toward what is ahead hmm. and it will be a lifelong journey. Now I'm hoping I'm a better man when I'm 80 than I am when I'm 54, right? <laughs> yeah. Me that too. God's working in my life on go. You, you too? You hope yeah. that I'm a better man? <laughs> oh, I'm not about <laughs> Definitely. Thanks for that, Hannah. No, I well, hope I am at yeah. 80. No, I think I'm coming yeah. around to this idea. It, it's a nice idea that we're unfinished, like we're ever growing. Um, yeah. That's kind of freeing. Exactly. <laughs> we're not, we don't have to be perfect. So let's, let's now, let's dabble in transpersonal psychology today. Now, I don't mean to do it like that, some kind of, you know, crazy thing. All that transpersonal psychology means is spiritual psychology. In other words, you know, we, many of us today in the Western world, especially again, we've embraced the world of psychology and what it brings to the table. What I love about transpersonal psychology in particular is it considers the spiritual life in that approach Hmm. that this is not some isolated thing void of god and the spirit and so when we talk about transpersonal psychology we're really talking about spiritual development as we understand it today with all the things we've learned about the development of self and ego so We're going to talk about an author named Michael Washburn. He wrote a book called Embodied Spirituality in a Sacred World. We'll try to remember to put that book in the show notes. And it's deep, it's deep reading. You know, I'm not necessarily saying people should go read it there, but they're welcome to if they want to know. But he would talk about that our psychological development happens in these three major phases, what he calls pre-personal personal and transpersonal. So pre-personal is kind of birth to five years old, five and a half years old, when when we're, you know, our character's kind of coming to bear. We're learning, we're growing, we're trying to find our identity and just kind of who we are. It's fun, you know, my grandkids are going to be coming today from Minnesota. Nope, they're from Chicago. Sorry, my (laughs) family's in Minnesota and Chicago. And I have an 18-month-old and a three-year-old. And just to see in these you know, years, like their personality just start to Mm. find itself. It's amazing. Mm. He would talk about the personal as that kind of five and a half year mark into middle adulthood. This is primarily where ego gets developed. Personality gets developed. Our understanding of ego can be like narcissism, but the way you're saying it is like a neutral term. That what you mean when you say ego. Right. So ego in the psychological sense in the field of psychology really addresses your personality or identity, who you are and how you hold that. Hmm. Now, how we hold that would determine whether we're a narcissist or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> if our ego becomes too, too big inflated. and we think of ourselves above and and you know other people, hmm. um, then then our ego gets inflated and unhealthy. But ego's a an integral part of, in this world of the world of psychology, it's an integral part of our development and who we are. We all have one. Right. It might be fragile. It might be inflated, but we have one. <laughs> so it's our right. sense of self or selfhood. Yes. Yeah, selfhood, identity, 
uh, personality mm. um, all ties into that. So what Washburn talks about is how we reach that transpersonal space. Now, the transpersonal space, middle adulthood and beyond, he would call a time of spiritual awakening. In other words, our spiritual selves become much more on the forefront of our understanding of ourself. And it's, it's not that spirituality lacked importance before that, but at that stage of life, it becomes the primary driving element of how we see ourselves. Mm. Now, this transition to this transpersonal space can only happen through a crossroads. He would call it a crossroads. What we're calling wilderness, he's calling crossroads. Mm. That we need to be shaped and formed through these difficult spaces in order to make enough room for God to come in where God becomes more and we become less. Hmm. Now, you know, I'm not arguing here that that means that our spiritual life's not important to us when we're, you know, whenever we have our conversion, whether that's 14 or 40, our spiritual lives, especially as followers of Jesus are always important to us. But as we get older, we start realizing and I think we see this in people that have reached that stage, that there's a spirituality about them, an understanding of the role that that spiritual life plays that really starts taking more and more precedent and the cares of this world become less and less. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about it in that sense. So what he would argue is that it requires inner work, that there's no way to reach this without a reconstruction inside of us. That this identity project that we have been talking about with Moses, we have to see through what's been given to us. So again, let's use Moses as our example. Moses trained in, in the palace. He's given this education. He's given this family. He's, but there's something inside of Moses that has to be developed that's who God made him. Mm. And in, in the, what wilderness is doing, it's stripping down these external things, these habits, these practices, this education, this, all these things on the outside. And it's forcing him to come to grips with who his true self is. So if we look at Moses as one who's dreaming about breaking the chains of Israel's injustice, he may have that instinct, but he's not ready to do that work because he hadn't been fully formed yet. Mm. So the challenge with Moses' story, which is what happens to most of us too, some of us anyway, when we go through this midlife kind of crisis, it's so hard, it's so painful, it's so disorienting that we often act out. We do something that is illicit. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's harmful. What does Moses do? in his acting out in this crisis, this identity crisis, he murders, mm. right? So not only does he have his identity crisis or this identity project to sort out, but he's also now got to deal with the fact that he's acted out in a way that's significant. And that makes it even more complicated. And that's what we mm. see happen a lot with people. So our complexities of the journey itself often gets more complicated by our own behaviors. Would you say, because we're talking about this crossroads or this wilderness, that it 
exposes ourself. I know it forms ourself, but it also exposes ourself. <laughs> Is it both or both of those things together? Because we're kind of forming. Both. Okay. It, so we it's see with exposing, Moses. It's forming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a great Psalm. It says in Psalm 32, verse four, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Mm. You know, we, we understand these moments when the world can't provide what's needed, where we find ourselves in fatigue and heaviness. We lose interest in the things that used to give us, you know, meaning. And we find ourselves in this kind of strange space. And, you know, this, this idea of crossroads, it, it happens multiple times in our life. It's puberty. Mm. You know, just as in puberty, there's a biological explanation, but there's something else happening with our own identity. Yeah. And similarly, in midlife, there's things that are going on biologically, but there's a psychological, spiritual thing happening too. So mm. this story of Moses, when we see now the end of this, this kind of ends with this you know, burning bush experience. We call that a theophany, this visible manifestation of God to humans. And this is kind of where we start seeing it really play out of what, what's happening. So Yahweh says to Moses in this moment, now he's 80 years old. He says, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. And then even later, and I think even more revealing when Jacob, or sorry, when Jacob, when Moses says, what's your name? God says, I am who I am. That's why you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you to me. So why is this so important? Moses's identity is now after this kind of crossroads shaped in this newly awakened space, it's shaped by God's self and who God is and who God claims he is to be. God becomes more. Moses submits to God's leadership, God's place in his life. We see this shape where he's going to go with his vision and what he's going to do. I think a, a sign for me of Moses' development even isn't his response to God. It's from the bush. He calls out Moses and it's, here I am. And I was reminded of when I spoke about Hineni being that word that Abram uses three times um, in that calling of him. It's like that sense of readiness and alertness. And that's the same word that Moses uses too. It's like, I'm ready now. <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, that's exactly it. That is a great summary of what's happening. So this idea of this crossroads producing this radical openness to faith, mm. this, even though there's a dark sense of emptiness, despair becomes a condition kind of pregnant for faith. Mm. Wow. Right. So Yahweh's presence draws out these responses. It, and it does this in all of us when we go through these really painful times. It can both fascinate and frighten. It can lure us and repel us. It can exhilarate us and terrify us. And the ego in those spaces is both exalted and humbled. We start to see what we can be with God and we start seeing what we are in our own brokenness. So God's presence really becomes significant for Moses. and. Mm -hmm. 
we see that even in the narrative and how this all plays out. So, you know, I, I know we talked about a lot today. I know there's a lot here. I know there's a lot to chew on. But what we do see kind of in conclusion is that this experience in wilderness produced wonder and timidity in Moses. He was humbled mm. and empowered to return to Egypt differently, not because of his own effort, but because he allowed God to transform him. And that's what God's doing in these spaces in our life is God is drawing us near to show us how much we need him. Mm. So wow. any final thoughts, Anna? There? I know it's a lot. A lot it's a lot there. <laughs> I think you've helped redeem this sense of desert and wilderness for me in many ways, even what it exposes, what it transforms in us and the way our character is shaped at these crossroad moments. And I'm I'm still figuring out, I don't know if they're things I'm going to seek out. I think they're going to find us. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you so much, Dave, for this wonderful framework of wilderness. I know we've looked at Moses' time in the wilderness today, and we're going to pick up next time in our new series with Israel's 40 years in the wilderness and what that produces in them in our new series, God's Nation Formed, which is coming up. So thank you for today. Stay tuned. Right. See you soon. Thanks, Anna. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm waiting on here, I get a better view of this mountain.